Good morning. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Lawton Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Paul's. The new guy, the new kid on the block. It's great to have you guys here in person, and we also extend a welcome to anyone that's out there listening on KFUO this morning or streaming it on the app later on this week or whenever you're listening. It's truly a blessing to be able to share God's Word in that way. So before we dive in to Luke again this morning, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank and praise you for this day, for this place to come together and study your word. I ask that as we are here, you would open our hearts and our minds so that we can relearn and inwardly digest what you have revealed about yourself to us through Luke's gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. So it's my understanding that where you all left off last week was in Luke chapter 9, verse 27. You guys kind of finished up that part. So Peter had confessed who Jesus was, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus had foretold his death and talked about taking up his cross and following him, taking up your cross and following him. So that leaves us to dive in right at the account of the transfiguration. Does that sound about right to you all? Yes. All right, you guys can respond. I love, I love talking, so dialogue is good. Um, so I want to read this account to you. You've probably heard it before, but just follow along in your Bible and listen as I read this account of the transfiguration to you all. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So this is one of those, those events from Jesus' life on earth that in the church we're familiar with. We, we celebrate this every, every single year. And it's an important part because it, it comes right before a transition in Luke's gospel. And it's also kind of a, a slide for the disciples. And you're going to hear me talk a lot about that this morning as we move through the material because just a few verses ago, Peter confesses who Jesus is. There's this clarity in the statement. He says that Jesus is the Christ of God. And so often, uh, today at least, when we talk about Jesus or we say Jesus Christ, sometimes we can almost 
sound like Christ is his last name, like Lawton Thompson, when actually that's the title. And so when Peter says that, he's saying, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God, the one who's come to redeem your people. It's crystal clear, the Christ of God. And yet, as we move forward in the narrative here, it seems that the clarity with which Peter spoke there becomes cloudier and cloudier for both him and for the disciples. And so today, we go up on this mountain to pray, right? Jesus is always surrounded by tons of people. They're flocking to him. He's healing. He's teaching. He's different. And so people are flocking to him, and he understands the need to get away, to be still, to talk to his Father. And though we don't ever want to say that Jesus is our example, right? Jesus is our Savior, our Redeemer. He does show us something here, and in a lot of other places in his earthly ministry, that we as Christians today need to recognize as important. And that's the time to step back, to be still, and to talk with our Father in heaven. I don't know if your life is anything like mine, but many days from the time your feet hit the floor until you go to bed at night, you're running and running and running and things are constantly going. And it can be hard to stop and have that conversation with God. Lift up your joys and your sorrows, your wants and your needs, the things that are troubling you to him. But Jesus constantly does that. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what we should also be doing as Christians. And it doesn't have to be formulaic either. It can be after you drop the kids off in the morning and you're driving in the car and you turn the radio off and you pray. If you're driving, please keep your eyes open. Anything like that, but having that time, Jesus does that. So he goes up on this mountain to pray, and another thing that's common, the disciples are tired. Peter and James and John, they're heavy with sleep, and so they're falling asleep, and something happens, something supernatural. Jesus' appearance changes. He's dazzling white. The word in the Greek is like lightning white. So this is a really bright white. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah are with him there on the mountain, and they're talking about his departure. And this is one of those really, really amazing connections between the Old and New Testament for a couple of reasons. But one of the ones is Moses and Elijah in the Jewish faith, they represent a couple of things. Moses Right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or in Jewish tradition they call it the Torah, right? the law. And so Moses is here conversing with Jesus, and he's representing this law, this law that was handed down from God to his people, this law that none of his people can keep perfectly, one that we stumble with day in and day out. And we look all across the Old Testament, right? And the Israelites, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's this pattern. But he's conversing with Jesus, true God and true man, on this mountain about his departure, the one who came to fulfill the law, the one who came to perfectly walk this earth 
and live all of the things that were required in that law perfectly. Next we have Elijah. Elijah, one who represents the prophets. If you were to go to a Jewish household today during Passover and you were to sit in on a Seder meal, you'd find at the end of the table an empty place, set and ready with a glass of wine there for Elijah because they're, I mean, they're waiting for Elijah to come back. He's representing the prophets. And so here he is talking with Jesus about his departure, the one who fulfills the writing of the prophets, the one that the prophets were pointing towards all those centuries before. This is an amazing thing that's happening. I, when we read this, this should come off the page at us because the disciples are heavy with sleep and then they're fully awake because, well, imagine standing in their shoes on the side of this mountain. You've been walking with Jesus. You've been traveling with him. You've been listening to the things he's taught, watching him heal, do all of these amazing things, and now suddenly he's glowing like lightning and Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter and James and John have likely heard from their rabbis throughout their life that the things that have been written by Moses, the things that happened in Elijah's life, and they're thinking to themselves, these two have been gone for an awful long time, and yet I'm standing on the side of this mountain, and they're here with Jesus. And so at the same time, there's this amazement but there's also a little bit of confusion because this, this, doesn't seem, this doesn't seem to match. This doesn't seem to add up. And so all of this is going on, and they're watching it. And then Moses and Elijah start to leave. And Peter, impetuous Peter, who does something that probably you and I might do the same thing of. We're, we're watching the divinity of Jesus, the glory of God on display here, on this mountain, call it a mountaintop experience. And he's like, time out, time out. It's good that we're here. This is a good place. I like what's going on here. Let's stay. I'm going to build a tent. We're going to build three of them. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we're going to stay here in this place. And, I mean, I can understand that. Jesus has been doing all these things, and then a little bit ago he talked about, you know, he, he was foretelling his death, and the disciples really don't get it. But that still, even if you don't understand it, that doesn't sound like something that's great. That's not nearly as awesome as what's going on on this mountaintop. So let's hang out here. But again, our text tells us here that Peter didn't understand what he was saying. He didn't know what he said. And so he says this, and then this cloud comes over the mountain. This cloud comes over the mountain, and from the cloud we hear this voice. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So it, as if the glowing and the Moses and Elijah aren't enough, suddenly this cloud comes over the mountain and this whole, this whole picture comes together. God the Father speaking, saying, Listen, Peter, listen. James, John, listen to Jesus. Listen to what he, what he has to say. He is my chosen one. 
And as that happens then, the cloud goes away. Jesus is there. Moses and Elijah are gone. And what do we find the disciples doing? They're silent. Does that strike any of you as odd? As Jesus makes his way through his ministry and he heals people, he does all these things, he tells them, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell anybody who did this. And what, what do the people do? I mean, they run to the town square and they're like, guess what? You're never going to guess what happened. I was blind, but I'm not anymore. And you know why? It's this guy, Jesus. So time and time again, through Jesus' life, we see this, this pattern in his ministry of people being told to not speak and then them not listening and just with joy and excitement shout out what has just happened. But, but Peter, James, and John on the mountain with him, all this happens and they're like, uh, I know what I just saw, but I don't know what to do with this just yet. <laughs> I don't get it. And so they're silent. And this is, and this is that, that move from the clarity of Peter's expression, his confession that Jesus is the Christ of God, into some cloudiness, into some confusion about, okay, I know what I said, and I know what Jesus is saying, but what does this all mean? Because there's this pattern that Jesus talks about of suffering before glory, right? The Son of Man must suffer many things. And that doesn't make sense. The people had been waiting for a Messiah, but they weren't expecting a Messiah that was going to come and say, hey, I've got to go suffer some things. I, got, I have to be turned over to men and be lifted up. They were expecting something totally different. They were expecting a Messiah that was going to come in and throw off their Roman overlords. Someone that was going to free them from the oppression they were under. Kings came in to sit on a throne. Kings came in to rule. Kings didn't come in quietly to serve and to be killed. That wasn't what this was supposed to be. So Jesus has turned this whole earthly paradigm on its head. And the disciples are wrestling with all of these things. Because again, they had sat at the feet of their rabbis and they had learned all of these things for their entire life. And now as they walk and talk and listen to Jesus, he's telling them things that don't match up with what they were, had been learning. And they're wrestling with just how this all makes sense. And so the simple clarity of that statement has led into a little more cloudiness here as we close out the transfiguration account. And they don't know what to do with all of the events that they've just seen on the side of this mountain. There's something else that connects this to the Old Testament that I think bears mentioning here because when we look at the Bible, we see how many times passages and events connect to one another from the Old Testament to the New Testament, within the Old Testament, within the New Testament. And it's this beautiful tapestry that shows just the amazing, the amazing nature of God's Word and His revelation to us. And if we look at all of the things that happen on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we rewind way back to the books of Moses, to the Pentateuch in Exodus, when the Israelites are at Sinai, 
we see some amazing parallels. Now, we don't actually know where Sinai is at, and the Mount of Transfiguration and Mount, and Mount Sinai are not in the same geographical location. But there's some beautiful parallels in the accounts. So when the Israelites are at Sinai, now this is after the Ten Commandments have been given. This is when they're there and Moses goes up and, and God is giving him a whole bunch of instruction. And the Israelites are at the base of the mountain. The account, this is about Exodus 24, starts out with numbering the days before they go up the mountain. And that's the same thing we find in the Transfiguration. Now, it starts there in this place with numbering the days. But when they get up the mountain, and on top of the mountain, there is this cloud. There's this cloud that comes over, and it's not a normal rain cloud. It's not one of the ones we study in science class. It's the $5 word of the day. It's a theophonic cloud. It's a cloud that God is in. God is revealing himself in this cloud. And he speaks from this cloud also in both occasions. And the one that's standing there being spoken to or in that scene, the main character, they have an appearance change. We remember Moses was on the mountain at Sinai. He looks a little bit different in the presence of God. And Jesus, and then Moses is back again, and Elijah are on the mountain in the future there with, well, it's in our past, but future from Exodus. And Jesus has an appearance change in that moment. Now, the next one's a little bit interesting, but there was accompaniment. So, in Luke's account, we've got Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the mountaintop. And if we were to go back into the Septuagint, so the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is from, from rabbis a long, long, long time ago, centuries ago. In the Septuagint account here, it actually, in Exodus, it says that there was someone with Moses. Now, Jesus and Joshua are spelled the same in Greek, but that's the word that's there. So there was accompaniment on that mountain, according to the Septuagint. There was brothers in both accounts, Moses and Aaron, and James and John. And this is the other fascinating thing. The leader's assistant in both cases, display a lack of understanding. And so we talked about Peter. Hey, let's hang out here. We're going to build three tents. It's going to be awesome. Moses is up on Sinai for a long time. Aaron's down with the people. And the people get bored. They're not wandering around the wilderness. They're camped out at Sinai. They're doing their thing. They've got time on their hands. And what do the people do? The same thing the Israelites do commonly throughout the Old Testament. They start whining, complaining. Aaron has them gather up all of their jewelry. They melt it down and they make a golden calf. They don't get it. Aaron doesn't get it. He leads them into idolatry right there. And so this is just one of those beautiful occasions where there are a lot of similarities. So these closing chapters of the book of Exodus display some really unique similarities to this mountaintop experience that we find in Luke. Not the same geographic location, but a beautiful parallel there to it. As God is revealing things to Moses in the Old Testament, as it and as Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah about his departure.
And one final thing. The word departure in Luke is actually not departure in Greek. I mean, it means the same thing, but Luke actually uses the word exodus, about his exodus. And so there's this beautiful connection there. You know, as you've got Moses in this Old Testament account, who has been called by God to lead his people from slavery in Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And Jesus is speaking about his exodus as he, true God, has become true man to lead his people from slavery to sin, death, and the devil into life everlasting in the presence of God. What a beautiful, beautiful account. And so as we, as we stop here for just a moment, I want to allow any time for questions or comments out there. Anybody have anything? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the, so the comment is that, that maybe there's some similarity with the pondering that Mary does at the birth of Jesus when all of these things are happening and she, she treasures those things up in her heart and she ponders them. Yeah, there, there could be some similarity there that, you know, with, when we're experiencing these things of God, you know, we, we want to make sense of them, but, but sometimes it takes a little bit of time and sometimes we just have to wrestle with them for a while. Thank you. Yes. Well, the reference to his uh, building three tents. Um, the Israel celebrated the feast of tents. Yes. As part of the Exodus. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't. You know, it says he doesn't know what he said, but yeah. I think it was in accordance with what was going on. Yes. Yeah. So the comment was. Israel celebrates this festival of tents, you know, in association with the Exodus. And so I think, I think you're right. I think in Peter's mind, he was thinking, oh, this is, this is what we do. This is how we move forward from here. But I think that maybe the lack of understanding that they're talking about, that it says he didn't know what he said, is because Jesus is bringing a new thing. And so I think that where he's going with that is saying, so you dwelt in tents. And you, still, and you celebrate that, that's good, but I'm doing a new thing here. And you don't need these tents anymore. And, but it was something totally new and different for the disciples. This was a, such a grand departure from everything they had known their whole lives. Uh, and so, so, yeah, so I think you're right. Peter was, in that, was heading in that direction, but, but the, the, what Jesus is doing is just totally different. Totally different. You don't need tents anymore, guys. No more tents. Very good. Anything else? Yes. That's Yes. Yeah, so so both a we weren't really sure what we saw, but also if I go tell people that Jesus was glowing like lightning and Moses and Elijah were there, they're all going to like laugh us out of town. That's, that's very, quite possibly, there could be a little fear there. 
I saw a hand back here. Yes, sir. Well, Luke tells us that the disciples were heavy with sleep here. Yes. Disciples. Do you see any connection between the Garden of Gethsemane where the three disciples were asleep? <laughs> I think that they just needed a lot of sleep. Yeah, I think there is a connection. It seems like when Jesus... A lot of times when Jesus goes up on one of these mountains to pray or when there's one of these times, right? That's another, that's another example we have where the disciples are tired. They can't, they can't, uh, they can't stay awake. They just need a nap. Um, but then they become awake either by Jesus coming back and saying, seriously, guys, could you not stay awake for me just for a little while or with him glowing? <laughs> yes, I, th- I think there is a... I think there is a, a, a some connection there. I don't know exactly what to do with that off the top of my head, but I think that's a very keen comment. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so... Mount Sinai, God's glory had to be veiled, right? But there, the disciples get to see it. Now, I'm sure it's not still, it's not still the full glory of God because, you know, we, we, we can't exist in that. We can't survive the full glory of God in our sinful state, even as sinner saints. Uh, but yes, yeah, there is some, some beauty there. And what a treat for those guys to get to stand on that mountainside and see that happen. Very good. Anything else? Seeing no hands, we're going to move forward. So, next here, we have a quick transition. And one thing that I think it's always important as we move through these narratives to remember is how quickly these things happen oftentimes. Sometimes we break up these different sections of text and we're like, I am going to study the transfiguration. And then the next week, I'm going to study Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit, and it becomes two independent accounts in our mind. And I'm saying this as much to you as I say it to myself, to remember that, well, this next verse starts with, on the next day. So they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, they come down, and the very next day, this happens. And I think that's important as we, as we move through through these next couple sets of verses. So here we are. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. See, as soon as he comes off the mountain, the crowd's already there, just waiting. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So 
we have this account here of the very next day. Comes down the mountain with his disciples. You've got Peter, James, and John who have just witnessed all of this. And this father has come and says, your disciples can't do anything with this. And Jesus looks at him and responds. And sometimes when we read this, we wonder, what, how, what was Jesus' emotion in responding to this father? Because you can read that in a couple ways. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, like frustration or anger. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure that that fully captures what Jesus is saying here. Now, in, in Luke's account, we don't have uh, some of the other words that Matthew records. And so, if we remember, we have the four Gospels, and three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic Gospels because they tell the events of Jesus' life in a very similar way. The Gospel of John tells the story of Jesus' life, but different than the, than the other three. And so, in some cases, we'll, we'll get an event recorded for us and we get the perspective of a couple of the different people that were there, and that's such a beautiful thing. And so I'm not going to jump over and read the text of Matthew, but in the other account, there's a little more dialogue between Jesus and this father. And, and the father, kind of exasperated, says to him, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when I read that, and when I see what Jesus says here in this account, it almost strikes me more like a statement of lament. Jesus has come down here, he's, he's teaching, he's healing, he's doing all of these things, and the people don't get it. At the end of, the, at the, at the end of this, it's all we're astonished at the majesty of God. People are seeing the things he does, and they're like, this is awesome. It's totally great, the things that he's doing. But this suffering before glory thing, this whole idea of what he came to do, the people don't understand. The disciples don't understand. And so it seems to me a little bit more like a lament. And it's understandable that they don't get it. We talked about how they had learned all these things from their rabbis throughout the course of their lives. But it also has been a little while since God actively spoke in the ways that they had studied about. The period of the prophets had ended centuries before. And so even though we understand that God speaks to us through his word, they had felt this season of silence, and now there is this person standing before them saying these things. Again, this, can be, this would be really hard to grapple with. And so this father says, I hear, when I hear those words from the father, I hear, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, and I, am, I believe, but I'm really struggling with some doubts about this. Because throughout the New Testament times and Jesus' time, there was all kinds of messiahs that showed up. It was like the flavor of the week, the new messiah that was here proclaiming that he was sent by God. And they all washed out. And they all washed out. So you can imagine this father saying, like, you're doing some amazing things, and I hear what you're saying, but I'm like, I'm struggling to fully grasp this and to fully take this in. 
And so I hear this a little bit more as a lament from Jesus about the struggles that the people are having with doubt. You know, the pain that he's feeling because he came down here because he loves his people. And just like a parent struggles when, with lament and pain when a child is not understanding the things that, that we're just like, come on, you guys should understand this. And then we forget that we have you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 more years of life experience and they don't get it. And we go, oh, why don't you get it? Now, Jesus also has the advantage of being God, so he has full and complete understanding. But I, I, I see this as a lament, as some pain on Jesus' side in this account here. And so, he does this, he heals, the crowd sees it, they're amazed, they're astonished at the majesty of God. Any comments on that section right there? Questions? Yes, sir. Generation. Faith was a twisted generation. Uh, that word can mean kind of people. So you know, it's almost like his, Jesus describing life on earth as a Yeah. It's almost like he's berating his, his environment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, so that word generation representing the people there that he's existing amongst, that he's living with, and, and just expressing that frustration with all that he's experiencing in his time here, walking, you know, walking those dusty streets of Palestine in first century. Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, and I think, so, talking about how, the, the comment was about how Jesus had given them the power to do these things, and now suddenly they can't, right, to cast out, to heal. And I think that plays into some of this confusion that's, that the disciples are experiencing. When we, think, when we think about the clarity that Peter spoke with, and then the silence of the disciples and their inability to heal, they're grappling with this. And so, Jesus is central, right? Everything we do points to Jesus. And if at any point it's not pointing straight to Jesus, we're missing the mark. And it seems to me that at this point in the narrative, the disciples are maybe pointing a little bit in it themselves, trying to understand what is being said, trying to understand what is being experienced around them. And maybe that takes their eyes a little bit off Jesus and places the eyes on the storm a little bit. Um, and so then suddenly we go, oh man, we can't. <laughs> Which then probably only makes them frustrated. Jesus said we could do this and now we can't. What's the deal? Now that's not recorded in scripture for us, but... Well, in Matthew, there are a couple extra verses where the yeah. disciples ask, why couldn't we drive it out? Yes. He says, because you have so little faith. Yes. So maybe that's part of the lament that even my disciples... Right. They don't get this. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate that. Yes. Wasn't there something that they said about this requires prayer? 
Right, so, and, and so, and there we come back to prayer, this, this focus on God rather than on ourselves. So we had the comments on, um, uh, from Matthew, from, uh, sorry, say that again? Why couldn't we drive them out? Why couldn't we drive them out? And so Jesus is pointing them back towards himself in that account, right? This is not in and of yourselves. Okay. Any other questions, comments? All right, seeing none, we're going to move forward here. So Jesus goes and again foretells his death in these next verses right here. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So, again, Jesus is saying, suffering before glory, right? The Son of Man is going to be handed up. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't get it, and it was concealed from them. And this... This is a pattern that we see with the disciples in the Gospels. Um, and not in, Luke, not in Luke as much, but in, in the Gospel of John, it's pretty profound. We watch this progressive revelation for the disciples that kind of slowly ramps up, and then real quickly after the resurrection, all of a sudden there's some clarity that comes in for the disciples because he's not ready for them to understand those things yet. So he's saying them, and they're hearing them, but they don't get it. And this is, that, this is that distinction between knowledge and understanding, right? Knowledge, I can have lots of knowledge and know the facts. You can tell me the facts about something. But once I understand it, that's when I've taken all of those bits of information that you've given me, and I've put, I've put them together, and I can comprehend them. I can take those pieces and make sense of what those pieces mean. And it seems that Jesus is saying these things and divinely blocking them from understanding it. But this also provides the opportunity for the disciples that once he's ready for them to understand that, that they can go back and say, you know, right after the transfiguration, he said this. Oh, wait. And right before the transfiguration, he said this. Oh, now I get it. And so he's giving them this information. Even if they can't understand it now, they're going to be able to go back to it and say, you know, Jesus did say that. He did say that. Maybe I didn't understand it then, but I do now. And even some of these accounts, right? They si they're silence at the end of the transfiguration. But both John and Peter, when they write, you'll find them calling back to the account of the transfiguration. And so that's a, it's a big deal. And so Jesus, Jesus is telling them these things so that they know these things. And we know it says that it was concealed from them and they were also afraid to ask. And we've probably all been there in class where you're listening and you miss something or you hear it and you don't quite get it and you think you missed something else and you're like, I don't want to be that one that's raising my hand and the teacher says, I just said that. <laughs> 
Weren't you listening? Um, and, and I will say, as I was preparing for today and I was reading commentaries and I was listening uh, to some studies on this, there was, there was one in which uh, they made a comical contemporary reference to the movie Rush Hour, where Chris Tucker is talking to Jackie Chan and he says, do you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth? And it is a little bit like Jesus is saying this to them, saying, let these words sink into your ears. Hear them and hold on to them. You're going to need this. Remember what I say. Uh, and so he says these words. Let them sink in. Hold on to them. Remember them. And then for us as Christians today, hold on to all the words of God. He's saying that specifically about these words to the disciples in this account. But we can hear those words from Jesus also and say, this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. In the person and work of his son Jesus, and in the words in Holy Scripture. And so as we sit here and study his word, we should hold on to those words also. Even if they're words that we don't completely understand at the moment, even if we have to wrestle with them for a lifetime, to hold on to those words is they are the revelation of God to us about himself. All right. Yes. 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 So, so the comment was that, that they were so attached to this idea of a political Messiah that it almost blocked them from being able to understand that even when Jesus is being confronted by demons, and when things like this are happening, and he's saying ex explicitly, you know, I've got to be handed over, that it's hard for them to understand. But really, that's what he's pointing to with all of the things that he's saying and doing. I'm not the political messiah. Don't get the campaign signs for your yards, guys. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here for something different. And pointing to the suffering servant passages in the prophets also, right? Yeah, they... They might have forgotten about that section of Isaiah where, wait, no, no, no. That's not, that's not how this needs to be. We need to get rid of these Romans. But thank you, yes, good comment. Anyone else? All right. You guys are keeping us on time. Thank you. <laughs> so, every once in a while when we read Scripture, we find something that can just make us chuckle a little bit. And the transition here makes me chuckle. Because we go from the seriousness of all these things, right? Mount of Transfiguration, casting out a demon, this conversation about Jesus saying, you know, foretelling his death. And the disciples are there with him, and they're like, okay, cool, we don't really get it. But you know what? Who's the best? Which one of us is the greatest? And I read that, and I know it's not meant to be funny, but there, I almost have to chuckle a little bit at just the segue right into this. And so we read, this is verses 46 through 48, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. So they, 
they go from all that seriousness straight into this like like sibling rivalry of who does dad like the most? Like who's the best? Um, and Jesus, in very Jesus fashion, because he's God, right? So he knows. And he grabs this child. And in first century Palestine, the view of children was a little bit different than the view of children that we have, right? We love children, kids, baby pictures, all the things. Children are great, and they are. Love kids, love my kids, right? They're great. But back then, what was a child? A child was something that was completely helpless, that couldn't contribute to the family at all, something that brought nothing with it but needs, something that was a burden for the family. Even if it was a beautiful burden, it was a hardship. And so this child coming to Jesus and him holding this child and telling them that this child was greatest was helping them to realize that it's not about what you bring to the table that makes you great. It's not about any of the the gifts that you have, the traits that you have. That's not what makes you great. Because we are all poor, miserable sinners. We are all completely and totally lost apart from Christ Jesus. And so, argue about who's the greatest with all of the little things in our lives. And we have some things in our lives that are beautiful, right? But standing before God, none of that makes us great. And so having that conversation is completely, completely out of line and shows even more that the disciples really are in this place of, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but I just don't get it. And so we come before the throne of God carrying nothing but our brokenness. And we lay that at the foot of the cross. And in the, such a beautiful thing in the, in the waters of baptism, as that water washes over us and the pastor says those words of God and those sins are washed away, we brought nothing to the table. And even all the sin and brokenness that was with us when we came is gone. And we're clothed in righteousness. And then, as we're focused on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then all of those beautiful gifts and things that the Spirit works in us are beautiful because they're done to God's glory. But then we're not competing for our greatness. We're serving God and showing His greatness. And so the disciples don't get that yet. But when we read that passage, that's what we need to come away with and remind ourselves. I am, Lord, I am nothing but an empty jar of clay. I'm just a vessel and a broken one at that. And he put me back together at my baptism and fills me up until my cup overflows. But it's not any of my things, it's all of his things flowing out of me. And so I, I, what a beautiful gospel moment as I chuckle about the disciples going like, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. And Jesus saying, 
No, no, you're not. <laughs> this is what makes you best because I love you, each and every one. With that being said, any comments or questions on that? Wow. Oh, no. Because the mother came. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I want them to have a good seat, right? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't only the disciples, right? Yeah. It was everybody was looking at Jesus. And, and as I said, if you're on the radio, you can't see me turning my hands over. Jesus is shifting that paradigm upside down. And so they're all looking at him going, I hear what you're saying, but this does not jive with any of the things I've been taught across the course of my life. Um, and it had to be so shocking for them. And it should be shocking for us too because it's not at all the way the world operates, right? The world's like, you need to be the greatest. You need to do all the great things and it's cutthroat. You compete with everybody else for the top dog spot. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus is saying, that's not it. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And as Christians called to the faith, we're called to lives of service. We're not called to hang out on that mountaintop experience at the transfiguration. It's good to be here, Lord, it is. But we're also called into the trenches of the week, whether that's in the workplace or in school or wherever. All right, so I wanna cover these last two verses right here, and then we're gonna close because this is a transition point in the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Um, 49 and 50 of chapter 9. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on these couple verses, but I think that there's something that we can take away from this. It's very important. This, this individual or these, these people that the disciples saw were casting out demons in Jesus' name. So maybe there's a little frustration because the disciples are like, seriously, we just had trouble with this, you know, a couple days ago. But they're like, they're not a part of the in club. They certainly can't be doing this. So Jesus, we're going to tell them to stop. And Jesus says something very different to them. If they're not against you, they're for you. They're casting them out in my name. And we, I'm a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, because I believe that we have the truest exposition of Scripture, that we understand the Bible the most accurately. I mean, I would not have moved across the country and gone to seminary if that wasn't the case. That being said... I do believe that there are people that believe genuinely in Jesus that are not a part of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And so if my Baptist brothers and sisters are serving in a soup kitchen, if they're helping the homeless, I should probably help out with them. I should probably go serve with them, and that's okay, right? If, if there is some kind of you know, clothing drive or something like that that the Presbyterian Church is putting on, that's okay for me to donate to that. That's okay for me to help out with that. Because they're doing it in Jesus' name. Now, 
that doesn't mean that we're going to have table fellowship, right? Having communion together says that we believe the same things about Jesus. So that's not where I'm going. I'm not going to share the pulpit with them because that's where God's word is proclaimed. And if they're not teaching the same things in their doctrine, I shouldn't let them speak there. But as we're out in the world as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can cooperate. We call it the fancy church term is cooperation and externals. We can go serve the people of this world alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ in some of those ways. And we don't need to look at some of these other groups and go, well, they don't do it just the way we do it, so we're going to tell them to stop. <laughs> and you don't have to go join them if you don't want to, but you, you have that opportunity to serve alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, that's diff- cooperation and externals. Fancy, there's your second fancy church word of the day, right? Without compromising our doctrine and what we believe in saying, no, you know, we're still not opening the communion rail, we're still not opening the pulpit, but we are serving alongside them because they are pointing to Jesus as well. And that is what this world needs so tremendously. And it needs us as Christians serving in our vocations out there during the week pointing to Jesus and when you, work, when you work in the secular world, you find yourself next to those folks. Serve alongside them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Amen. So I said I wanted to stop here. I wanted to stop here because at this verse, at the end of verse 50, we see a big pivot in the Gospel of Luke. And so it's a great place to pick up for the next time. Uh, And you'll see, it says, verse 51 here, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we're witnessing the close of Jesus' Galilean ministry and him turning towards his passion. And so that's why we're going to stop right here. And so I thank you very much for being with us here this morning, whether you're in person or whether you're listening on the radio.